Hi, y'all, and welcome to Dismantled, a podcast for intersectional environmentalists. I'm your host, Leah Thomas, and throughout this season, we've featured conversations with diverse activists, changemakers, and leaders in the fight for climate justice. Intersectional Environmentalists, or IE as we call it, is a digital platform with resources, information, and action steps to help dismantle systems of oppression in the environmental movement. We believe conversations about the climate crisis must address and be led by those most impacted by it, Black, Indigenous, and POC communities. This season is sponsored by Drops, and today I'm sitting down with IE team members Lexi and Simra. Welcome! It's so nice to sit down and chat with you all. Today we're going to be talking about the intersectional history of environmentalism to kick off Earth Month. So I'm really excited about this episode. It's extra special because I work with you all every day and wish I could totally spend more time with you all, but you know, we're in this panorama. Um, and I'd love to introduce this beautiful project that you all have been working on. Super excited to premiere it in um, Earth Month. So to start off, can each of you all tell us a little bit about yourselves and what you do and where you all grew up? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so I grew up in the Bay Area, and I am a photographer and videographer. And here at IE, I am the I am the media house creative lead. That was super modest, Simra. You're kind of a rock star, but alrighty. <laughs> and Lexi, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Lexi. Um, I am an environmental justice research intern here at IE, and I'm from Orange County, so Southern California. And yeah, I'm super excited to have been a part of this project and also to be here today. What did you all want to be when you were little, and what led you to environmental activism and the work you're doing at IE today? Um, so when I was younger, I wanted to be a teacher only because I wanted to write on the whiteboards. Um, and then I got more into art, and I think that's where I dove into photography and videography. That's so cool. I loved writing on the whiteboards, but, like, I only liked the ones with the the markers. For some reason, like, chalk is just not my thing. I don't know if you have, like, a preference with your whiteboards. Well, I guess the only – there's whiteboards and green boards. What are they called? Chalkboards? I'm old. I'm a millennial. I like I wanted to write on the whiteboards because of the pens and the way they glide on the whiteboard. It's just so smooth and silky. Um, I don't know. And the smell kind of. I really like the smell as a kid. Um, I think that a lot of kids had that problem because they get a little too excited when they smell the markers. But um, yeah, I.E. I am um the media house creative lead and basically i help with the art direction of the videos and um with storytelling and how it um we visually transform all the information that our research team um cooks up and turn it into a video that is super dope and we're super excited to have you um so lexi what do you do at ie and if you don't mind sharing our personal connection through the chapman universe okay so at ie um i do environmental justice research but that kind of branches into research just 
all over the place, um, whether that's for socials or for podcasts or for videos, which is super nice because it means I kind of get to interact with everyone. Um, and yeah, I kind of came to start working at IE because I had the privilege of already knowing Yulia. Um, we both go to Chapman University, and that also really informed why I wanted to do environmental justice research in general. Um, so Chapman is a private white institution, and they really love to live up to that name. Um, even though it is like a liberal arts school, the people there are still tend to be pretty conservative, and I am in the environmental science program there, which is absolutely amazing, but also still has a long way to go when it comes to talking about environmental justice and just sort of justice in general. And I definitely want to say um, that I gravitated towards wanting to work with Lexi because I feel like she's definitely a troublemaker, and maybe I had a little bit of that troublemaking spirit at Chapman too, but yeah, I'm really excited for the work that both of you all are doing and just honored to be able to work with you all. Um, so we're rolling out our intersectional history of environmentalism video uh, this month, and it's been in development since the winter. Um, a lot of people don't know all the behind the scenes that went into it from like color correction and grading black and white photos to all the research and condensing it into a video. Um, and you both played extremely key roles in bringing this video to life. Honestly, when I watch it, I get chills and I don't even like listening to my voice, which I know is weird because I'm on a podcast. Um, but when I was watching it, it just made me so proud of our team and of you both. Can you speak to your roles in the video and some of your favorite moments in the development of this project? Yeah, I'd love to. So really with starting this project, I feel like I've been working on it for so long. And Leah, just like you, I watched it and I made everyone in my house like come and sit down and watch it with me and then afterwards I just like had tears in my eyes and I wanted to cry I was just like kind of so amazed at the end product and just like how many stories and like people came together to make this project but really the research side of this looked like a lot of months of getting to just sit down and read through a whole bunch of journals reading through a lot of sort of like academic literature and text and then being able to like start to distance away from like more formal academic literature and like watching people um, whether it was through podcasts or it was through books or it was through blogs just talk about their own personal stories and their connection to the environmental movement and like what it means to be um, just who they are and like their family's connection to the environmental movement and that also was just really awesome because I think it just showed that there's so many connections to environmentalism, whether that is with the civil rights movement, with migrant farm workers, with, um, you know, the movement for public housing or safe workspaces. They're all inherently still environmental movements. So I think also seeing those connections as I was reading through these stories was just absolutely amazing. Yeah. And then going off of that, I agree, like, seeing the video and the end product was like surreal because it took us all so long and we put in so much like effort to make sure that we were trying to cover as many stories possible um and so with the research I turned it into with the research I visually translated it so that um like we can get a better sense and put people and pictures to the information because personally 
I'm a visual learner. So while I was editing this video, I was also learning a lot um, because I'm relatively new to the environmental space. So editing this was like a way for me to learn more um, beyond like the surface of like the mainstream environmentalists and stories we constantly hear. Um, yeah, and I feel like I learned so, like each time I went through the video to edit, I like learned something new and picked up on something new. And so the whole process overall wasn't just like me making a video because I like knew everything, but it was also a learning process for me. And to segue a little bit, and we'll go back and forth into the video and learning more about the two of you, but what are things that both of you all do outside of IE, I think, or outside of your own like personal activism journeys? Because I think when people think of activism, sometimes they think that you always have to be on, or if you're passionate about photography, you always have to be taking pictures, which Simaret seems like you are, um, or you always have to be researching or whatever it is. But outside of, I guess, your main responsibility at IE or what you all do in your activism life, what do you do for fun? Um, I can start because I'm currently on spring break and I've been having so much fun. Um, one of my favorite things, which I know definitely is like, oh, yeah, that's probably why she's in research. But I really love to read. But I love to read like fictional works, like things about like utopias or like a lot of really scary pieces like horror pieces that have like a bit of like magicalism in them it really is just so fun to me to kind of like get sucked into like a different place and just really be able to read and besides that I also love roller skating I'm just so so horrible at it but nothing makes me happier than like trying to learn weird or like fun new tricks I recently learned how to moonwalk on skates not well but I can do it but yeah that's what I like to do outside of activism work I just got my pair of skate. Well, actually, I didn't just get them. They're actually a birthday gift for me last year. And I've been holding on to them. And I'm super excited to hopefully like learn how to roller skate this summer. So that's that's super cool. And Simra, what do you do outside of your photography work um, to find fun? Um, I feel like people always ask me this, but I literally like love taking photos so much that it's like not really a job for me. But aside from that, if I had to choose um, this, this past weekend, actually, I just started learning how to skate, like on a skateboard and like a penny board. Um, and so that's a new passion of mine. It's really fun. Um, we should all go skating together soon. You guys can be on your roller skates and I'll be on my skateboard. Um, and then if I'm not doing anything active, <laughs> then I'd be hanging out with my friends and getting boba. And because we live in the suburbs, we literally just drive around and listen to music. And like, literally, that's all. That's like the suburban life for us. It's the suburban dream. Um, I feel like now would be the perfect moment to just like insert skater, skater girl by Ava Levine. She was a skater girl. And also when I was working at Patagonia, um, a bunch of us had this like club that didn't exist. We wanted to go roller skating together. And whenever we'd see each other, we'd just be like, hey, 
you come in a skate club and it never happened, but I think I'll start, you know, just messaging you all in Slack and just do hashtag skate club. Um, and we can laugh about it. And one day maybe we'll go out to skate, <laughs> but back to IE things. Um, so every time I rewatch the video, um, I don't know. I just get so inspired because there's so much information just packed in there. And Simra, you just did such a beautiful job at turning Lexi's research into a visual representation that's so unique. I've never seen a style exactly like this. Can you tell us about what you learned along the way during this journey? Um, And did your perspective of environmentalism or how your role within environmental advocacy um, change while you're working on this project? Yeah. Um, I think that because this video was one of the longer projects we've done, um, it was kind of like the last video was like seven minutes and this one was like 15 minutes. So I feel like for this one, I was more aware of the stories that were going into it and making sure like from research that I'm finding all the photos and videos that like supplement that and not leaving out like any faces because sometimes you can like mention somebody's name but if you don't show their face it's kind of like I personally feel like we're not honoring them if we're not showing their face and putting their name to a photo um But yeah, I think I learned more of a nuanced history because as somebody, again, who is relatively new to the environmental space, um, like I didn't know about like a lot of these people that were mentioned in the video. And so, again, like I said before, it was like a lot of learning for me. Um, And yeah, just being a storyteller Um, in general, like outside of IE and in IE, I think that it's really important as the editor, because you have a lot of control of what goes in and out of the video. So you have to like be very on top of uh, making sure that all faces and voices are heard and represented because you have like that power to do so. And can you tell us a little bit about, so Phil, who's our uh, head of media, was trying to explain to me how you color graded photos, but I just was like, this is going over my artistic um, abilities because I only really play around with fonts and graphic design. Um, But what was that process like and what exactly did you do to transform some of these photos or videos? from black and white to what we see in the video, like super vibrant colors that just feel so real. But what was some of the magic behind that transformation? Yeah, it's actually pretty easy. So um, I sourced out some photos and Lexi had some photos already in a folder for me and um, they were all black and white. But I feel like when you see photos in black and white versus in colored, especially like photos that were taken back in the 1900s, you kind of feel like it's way older than it actually is. Kind of just like how the MLK photos, people are always like, oh, like this wasn't in black and white. Like this happened while we had like colored film and colored photography um, rather than like black and white photography. Um, So from the photos that we sourced, all I did was I went in Photoshop and I kind of just 
selected a brush tool with different colors and I chose colors. I tried to, obviously, I don't know like exactly what color shirt everybody was wearing in that photo, but um, I used some nice pastel colors and you just um, change the layer uh, type and you just color over the photos and it's really easy. Um, and people could do it at home if they wanted because if you have Photoshop, then it's a pretty simple thing to do and you can like make your family, old family photos look completely different and give it new life. And that's how, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah, <laughs> that's how I colored them. You know what? I see like an IE workshop coming up. Maybe, okay, if listeners are interested or maybe we'll just make a little video, I feel like that would be so fun where you kind of explain your process so other people who look up to you and what you do, maybe they can learn a little bit more. So I'll I'll keep that in the back of my head for after this recording. Think about all those plastic bottle cleaning products that you see filling grocery store shelves. Those cleaning products are loaded with unnecessary chemicals and dyes, and a shocking 68% of those bottles aren't recycled. That's over 275 metric tons of plastic waste that goes into our oceans and waterways every year. That's why we love Drops, the laundry and dishwasher detergent pods that everyone is talking about. With over 10,000 five-star reviews, you'll see in no time how great their eco-friendly products are, Drops delivers powerful cleaning from nature with plant and mineral-based formulas to your door and low-waste cardboard packaging instead of plastic containers that end up in our oceans and landfills. All the cleaning power comes in one small, efficient Drops pod that costs less than what you're using now. Sign up for auto shipments to save big. You can pause, skip, or cancel anytime. Use code DISMANTLED at drops.com slash dismantled for 25% off your first order. Um, but Lexi, so what exactly is the intersectional history of environmentalism? Maybe I should have started with that. Um, so we both studied environmental science, um, and policy. And like you said, we went to a university where for me, I'm, I'm black and the black population was like an asterisk. It wasn't even 1% of the population. There wasn't a lot of people of color representation, and that's changing thanks to people like you. Um, However, there was so much that I had to learn outside of the classroom about the contributions of black and brown folks all over the world that I feel like is so essential. And I think when the founding members and some of our founding team of IE got together, our biggest goal was really to reimagine what environmental history could look like. So the stories of the environmental justice movement or the indigenous people from around the world, how they contributed to what we have now and what might be considered sustainability. And I think this project is a really good step in the right direction because not only is it cool, we kind of a lot of us were environmental students and this video and this project I feel like is what we wanted to be taught. And it honestly just sends chills down my spine that we have this video that is essentially what we wanted to learn when we were kind of eco kids. But what does this project mean to you and why is telling an intersectional history of environmentalism important for the future of sustainability? Yeah, I mean, 
just just kind of to go back really quick about, you know, going to Chapman and having a formal education in environmental science. I am basically done with my environmental science degree now. And I can say that only now in my last year have I taken a class where we've had a really deliberate conversation about environmental justice. And we've named some of these systems of oppressions in place, whether that's racism or discrimination or whatever it might be. And it's only because we kind of as a class fought to have an environmental justice class taught by an amazing professor, Dr. Angela Minnie Darcy, who's indigenous um, to the Tongva area and, you know, wants to have these conversations. But besides that, it's always been you know, you're basically doing double the work as a student when you care about environmental justice, but it's just not being taught about. You have to show up and not only learn, but then also kind of be the teacher and like facilitate these conversations around environmental justice when you're learning it yourself. So I think that was definitely really hard. And I wish I had a video like this or even an organization like this to kind of look to when I first started to get into environmentalism and I guess kind of getting into now what this project means to me, I feel like growing up, um, I had always wanted to go into law. And then I found out about environmental justice and environmental law. And I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. And going to college and sitting in classes where I'm the only person of color in the entire class really, I think, kind of added to this like imposter syndrome of like already on top of being in college and being first gen. And, you know, if I had just sat in a class where someone had told me stories like the ones that we're telling in this video, stories of people like Ralph Abascal, who is a Latino lawyer and activist, who actually is a person that got DDT banned, instead of only talking about people like Rachel Carson, who is a white woman who wrote a, wrote a book called Silent Spring, and it was amazing, and it did a lot to get, you know, the nation thinking about DDT, but it was, it was the work of a Latino lawyer and migrant farm workers coming together to actually get DDT banned, and I think if I had seen people that looked like me um, represented in environmental history, as I went through my formal education, I wouldn't have felt so much of imposter syndrome as I try to just exist in this space and as I try to find my voice. Um, but it's so nice that we have it now and that there are so many more people that are thinking about it. And if it even just means that one person can watch this video and see that, you know, it's, it's not so much about like making room for BIPOC, for women, for working class people, for people that look like you in this movement. It's, it's more so about finding the stories of your people who have been in this movement for a long time since before we even had the word environmentalism. You know, and I think that's really empowering because it feels like you're almost like standing on the backs of giants or on, on the shoulders of everyone who came before you. And you know that you can you can do this and you can do more because people like you have been doing this for a really long time. That's so beautiful. And honestly, that's what I felt when I was watching the video. And I hope other students don't necessarily have to go through what we went through in our environmental education by having to look outside of the classroom to learn about our people and their really long, probably even longer, um, you know, history with, you know, better land management practices or sustainability and just understanding that even though it might not have been called sustainability, our different cultures have practices that are inherently sustainable and have basically developed the blueprint 
for the sustainability that we have today. And when I think about my grandmother or my parents, um, they wouldn't identify as environmentalists. However, my grandma is the OG recycler. She uses all of her plastic bags over and over She has a cookie tin that she puts all of her sewing materials into. And I think one of the most empowering things for me to feel like I can take up space in the environmental movement was just looking back on those cultural traditions that are sustainable. So for you all, is there anything in your family or culturally speaking that is a sustainable practice but maybe isn't always taught or something that you picked up from your parents or grandparents or people in your family? Yeah, I think about this one all the time, just because when I first decided to go into environmental work, my parents had no idea really what that fully meant. And they were really worried. They were like, how are you going to, what is that, what kind of job does an environmentalist really have? Um, But they really are environmentalists too, and just so much throughout my family that's represented. So um my family is Mexican and my dad is literally an immigrant and from his whole family, they brought just so many cultural practices that are so sustainable and so inherently environmental. I mean, like you, my family recycles absolutely everything. You can't throw away anything like a spaghetti jar. No, no, no. We're going to wash that out. We're going to put something else in there. Or those like really big country crock butter containers yeah, when you're finished with the butter, we're not throwing that away. Now we're going to like put like sewing material in there and it's going to like sit on my grandma's cabinet. And it's just always kind of been like that in my family, whether it was recycling or it was gardening and growing our own food outside, just because often we couldn't find a lot of the spices that we would want in stores. Or my grandma would always complain that the chilies were never hot enough, so she would grow her own. Um, And those are all super environmental things. And they had never once really considered themselves environmentalists either. But then after, I think more recently... Um, with kind of the changes that I've seen in the environmental movement, I felt more confident to say, you know, I hadn't, I didn't just become an environmentalist. I've been an environmentalist for a really long time. And so is my family, even though they don't call themselves that. Yeah. I have some of like the similar experiences where it's like, you're not going to throw away like shampoo bottles, or if there's still ketchup left, then you add water to it and use like every single last bit of the ketchup. Um, and we're constantly reusing, um, like yogurt tubs and putting random things in there. Um, and so, um, and when I went back home to Pakistan, um, because the water isn't clean, you have to boil it. So with the soda bottles, whenever my family got soda bottles, we would, and we finished it, we would put the boiled water in there and then put that in the fridge and we just constantly reuse those bottles um although I'm not sure if it's the safest but you have to do what you have to do um but yeah I just think it's so like admirable and so like cute that all immigrant families have the same like experiences with reusing like products that we get until like it like breaks or something And I hope with the work that we're doing and that so many other BIPOC are doing in this space, I don't know, when I Google what a sustainability enthusiast looks like or what an environmentalist looks like, like, I mean, I love all the influencers with the the beige color schemes and the the mason jars like represent, Um, but I really hope that, you know, our ancestors can 
show up in those searches or in those textbooks. So people who look like us, they can know, you know what, I've got a long history of sustainability and that they can reclaim it for themselves. And I think that's the really cool thing about IE. Like we're really new as an organization, but I think we're really passionate about unearthing the stories of the past to empower future generations of BIPOC to go out in the world and know that they have roots in sustainability and that they belong here. Um, and that's the cool thing about this project. But for you all, I know, Lexi, you touched on this a little bit earlier, imposter syndrome. That's something that I've encountered quite frequently. But there, um, so there's this quote by Dr. Maya Angelou, who's one of my favorite Black writers. And she's talking about writing a book after she had already published several like bestsellers. And she says, every time I'm working on a new manuscript, I look over my shoulder because I think someone's going to come knocking on my door and say, you're a fraud. And it was just so funny to me that one of my favorite writers also experienced imposter syndrome. So it made me feel a little bit better about experiencing it. But have you all ever experienced imposter syndrome? I think it's something that pops up a lot for BIPOC women. And what advice would you give to you know, a youngin or someone who might be looking up to you, who might be really interested in creating their own projects like the intersectional history of environmentalism? I feel like um, I constantly feel like I have imposter syndrome. And especially like when I got, when I started my internship with IE, it was like after I had constantly been, it was after I graduated college and I was constantly like applying to like hundreds of jobs because I wasn't sure if like photography was going to make me money um and so when I got the internship for IE like I was like wow do I like really like deserve this do I deserve to be here but then when I um joined and I like got to know everybody at IE I felt really welcomed and I think that's important is for people to feel welcomed when they come into a workspace especially as like an entry level or like a fresh grad because it's really intimidating out there but with like a warm community you feel less of that intimidation um and then with like my photography stuff like I'm still constantly questioning if I deserve to be there because the space is just so dominated by white people that like I still haven't to this day seen somebody like a South Asian Pakistani Muslim girl who's done photography and has been like successful at it. Um, so slowly I'm trying to like change my mindset, but I think what I would tell um, young brown creatives, um, especially coming from a um, culture that looks at looks down at getting a career in the arts, um, I would just say to literally like do what you want to do and listen to your heart. And that sounds so cheesy and it's so cliche and everybody says it, but like once you put that in your mind, like it's so true and it like works that you're like, even though that was cheesy, that is like the answer. Exactly. <laughs> well, okay. Is there anything else that didn't make it into the final video? Um, I think, so one of the things, there's a tremendous responsibility of having a platform like IE where we want to be intersectional in nature and we want to talk about so many different stories. However, we realize that, you know, we're not perfect and it's a journey and that 
The beautiful part of IE is that we're committed to accountability and always growing and always searching and finding new stories to bring forth. So I'm hoping that we get to do more of these intersectional history projects that get even more nuanced and talk about different issue areas. But is there anything that was left out that you wish could be included or that you're kind of saving maybe for the next project that we work on? Um, There's just so many things that I think I had seen in stories I was able to like hear while doing this project that I had just never heard before, even though I do have like a formal environmental education. And I feel like I do try outside of even like the classroom to learn these stories that I wouldn't have ever been able to find if I hadn't like sat down with the intention of looking for these stories. Um, And I wish we could actually just share all of them and like one by one go through them. And we've been able to share like a good handful of them through um, just social media posts on the IE page. But yeah, there are definitely some, a couple of other ones that I really would like to share. There's one about like the story of land and just kind of the way that like land developed, you know, alongside the American identity and how land was just taken from indigenous people while at the same time being given for free to white colonizers. And at that same time, also, you know, this is right after emancipation and now newly freed black people were being upcharged for land and they had to rent land at a really, really high price that then kept them um, indebted basically forever and kind of continued on slavery. Um, And I think just sort of that progression, there's so many smaller stories within just that small story of land during that time period. And that's one that I wish, you know, we could really just do a full project on. And I know we definitely could, but there are stories like that kind of throughout the entire timeline that hopefully we'll be able to kind of go over soon. And Simra, was there anything that you wanted to include or do you have any ideas of future projects that maybe we could unpack the intersectional history of? Yeah, I think like another like project or series that like we can touch on is going like an around the world series and touching on different countries and continents subcontinents and I think that and bringing in people from those communities I think that would be a very it would be a big project but it would help us expand beyond like America and yeah beyond America. (laughs) That makes me excited because, yeah, I think that's something that we're missing. A lot of our team is based in the U.S., and I'm excited for IE to go global, you know, once we're set up, because there's so many stories and perspectives that sometimes are even more so left out, especially in the American educational system that really just pushes this odd and harmful American exceptionalism rhetoric. But there's so much that we need to unpack, especially the ways the United States has contributed to environmental injustices across the globe. Um, So Simra, keep those ideas. Listeners, if you have any ideas, let us know. Um, So for a final ending question, is there a nugget of advice that you all would love to share with the community? Yeah, I think the one thing that I would want to share is just that You know, you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have a long background or educational background in environmental science to 
be an environmentalist, to look for these stories, to share these stories, um, and to take up space in the environmental movement. I feel like, again, that kind of relates back to the imposter syndrome thing, but it's really easy to feel like, you know, you shouldn't take up space. You're not an expert on this conversation, but you're definitely an expert in your own experiences. So speak to them and, you know, take up space proudly while you find your voice. Simra, any any nuggets? <laughs> I would say that I think when I think of like activists, I get like intimidated and I feel like a lot of young people also get intimidated by the idea of being an activist. But I think, and you feel like you have to be like an activist to be in like these different communities and spaces, but like literally to be an environmentalist or to be in the space, like you literally just have to be like living and you have to like literally just care about like the planet and people. Like that's literally all it takes to like be a part of the environmental space. And I feel like we're all already a part of it because we all live on this planet. Um, but yeah, I would say to not be intimidated by the word activist or activism, because that's like, that's a role that some people have, but like, you don't have to be that to be in different communities and organizations. I couldn't agree more. Activism looks differently for everyone. Um even for myself, like I stopped calling myself an activist because I felt like it came with a really specific connotation. And I feel like I'm kind of a creative, a sustainability communicator, whatever it might be. But I don't want other people to shy away from the title activist because it doesn't need to look a certain way. And to Simmer's point, you know, creatives are a really big part of social change, sometimes the underrepresented underdogs, but there are people behind the fonts and the music and the posters and the videos and even sometimes the poetry and the protest songs, whatever it is. Artists are an incredible vehicle for both social, political, and environmental change. So don't sleep on us. But without that, uh, with that, thank you all so much for joining our final episode of this season of Dismantled. Over and out. See ya.